Amen. You guys can be seated. Children can be dismissed to Kids Church. Be going with the Maoris there. You'll have to uh, forgive my uh, lack of a strong voice this evening. Uh, yesterday, as some of you guys heard, Eli and I went to the Notre Dame football game, and uh, it was Eli's first ever game, and so we had this awesome father-son day uh, there at the football game, um, just yelling our voices uh, completely off. And so um, there was uh, a lot of uh, moments that we enjoyed. One in particular is uh, when one of our defensive players was running back a fumble almost for a touchdown. And uh, Eli is next to me and he's screaming, In your face, Virginia! In your face! And I'm like, That's my boy. That is my boy. Okay, so uh, last week we began a brand new series uh, titled The Opposite of Epic. Uh, For any of you who missed that first introductory message, I encourage you to go back on the podcast and uh, check that out. But what we started last week was we introduced the idea that as a culture, we're in this near constant pursuit of excitement and thrill and adrenaline. We are, for that reason, very easily bored and we want everything to be epic. We want to get in shape with quick fad diets. We want to be maximally entertained at all times in everything we read, everything we watch, everything we listen to. We're reminded in AT&T commercials that just okay is not okay. And so if there's no fireworks, if there's no explosions, if there's no breathtaking adrenaline, we are quick to say, next, and we move on. The thing is, we apply that same sort of thinking to our spiritual lives. And so it's no wonder that we have trouble gaining any kind of traction in anything. Because no church can be epic all the time. No preacher, no music, no ministry or program can always be the best thing ever. Most especially when we operate with this type of thinking when it comes to our our own personal relationship with Christ, we can never sustain any type of long-term growth or any type of depth. We'll hear a great sermon like you guys do every single week. (laughs) We'll get all jazzed up and we'll commit to changing everything right now and then only last three days. By Friday, we can't even remember what the sermon was about. We'll say, I'm going to start a prayer journal. And we'll go out to the store and we'll buy a fancy looking journal that's just begging for pictures to be taken of it so that we can upload to Instagram. I'm not picking on anybody, don't look at me. Don't at me. And then we'll sit down and we'll write a, a long, eloquent prayer. But by the following week, that prayer journal has one complete prayer And three prayers that were started but then got interrupted by whatever it was that's going on. It's kind of like New Year's resolutions. New Year's resolutions sound awesome and we love to start them. 
But you know how it usually goes, right? Ask any gym owner and they will tell you January is their busiest month and February everything is back to normal. So last week we began to talk about the fact that spiritual maturity is not marked by roller coaster rides that are 17 seconds of epic. Spiritual maturity is always like a slow cooker. It is never like a microwave. It is a steady, habit-driven life that is consistent, that leads us to the growth in Christ that he intended. And so we began last week to lay the foundation of why it's important to have spiritual disciplines. The word makes us shudder. But whether we realize it or not, habits form us. It is our habits that determine what kind of person we are and what kind of person we will be in the future. So developing healthy spiritual habits will lead to us becoming well-formed spiritual people. There's no secret, there's no hidden trick, there's no spiritual life hack that will all of a sudden unlock our great potential and get us to where we need to be tomorrow. What will unlock that potential is steadiness. You guys know the old story of the tortoise and the hare, right? It's one of Aesop's fables, probably one of the most well-known stories. You have this super arrogant, super fast hare, and you have this average tortoise who end up challenging each other to a race. And so the hare starts off full speed. He's leaving the tortoise in his dust, gains so much ground in the first few minutes that he looks back and realizes, this turtle doesn't stand a chance. I'm just going to take a little nap. I'm going to rest. And so, as the hare is napping, the tortoise just keeps slowly plodding along toward the finish line. As he is almost there, all of the other animals are cheering so loud that the hare wakes up and realizes that the tortoise is about to cross the finish line. And so the hare starts running as fast as it can to get to the finish line to win the race, but he's too late. By the time he gets there, the tortoise has crossed the finish line much to the excitement of all of the forest animals. And so, what is the moral of that story? The moral of that story is, slow and steady wins the race. Now, here's the thing. I always thought that that was a stupid story. And an even stupider moral. To me, whenever I hear that story, I think the moral should be, don't sleep during a race, you idiot. Well, it turns out we might not have the whole story. In 1915, an author named Lord Dunsany wrote a version of this story that he called The True History of the Tortoise and the Hare. Now, the thing is, the the story of the tortoise and the hare is considered to be one of Aesop's fables, but no one really knows who wrote it, where it came from, what the original actually was. Lord Dunsany claims that he has the full story. In the popular version that we all know, like I said, the hare goes to sleep because he is arrogant. 
He thinks that he can prove how great he is by taking a nap mid-race and then waking up and still winning. But in Lord Dunsany's version, the hare immediately recognizes how pointless this is. This whole endeavor is pointless because he clearly knows he is the fastest animal in the forest. And he feels like he has no need whatsoever to prove himself to anyone. In Lord Dunsany's version, the tortoise is the arrogant one. He's misguided, forever challenging the hare to a race. So, says Lord Dunsany, the hare intentionally lets the tortoise win. Because, in part, of what happens after the race. There's an ending that we leave off. After the race, the the, uh, other animals of the forest deem the tortoise to be the fastest animal among them. He's won the race, so the tortoise is the fastest. And so they begin to celebrate with the tortoise at the finish line, but then they notice over the crest of the hill that there is a forest fire approaching. And so they decide they need to send someone for help. And who better to send for help than the fastest animal among you? And so they send the tortoise for help. This, of course, is a fatal error because the tortoise is actually the slowest and in the end, all of the animals die. (laughs) Much different story. Now, I say all the animals die, except, of course, for the hare, who, having already seen the fire and giving up on this pointless race, has run away to safety. So what is the moral of that story? The moral of that story is, slow and steady may win the race, but it will get you killed in a forest fire. (laughs) So, what does... Thank you for that... (laughs) My wife says it's stupid. What does this have to do with spiritual disciplines? Here's the truth. Sometimes I really struggle to put together a sermon. There there are times when it comes easy, times when the pen is flowing, so to speak, times when I'm hitting all cylinders. Then there are other times when I'm staring at a blank screen and that Vertical cursor is just flashing at me, taunting me, and I'm going over, over in my mind, where do I even start? Where do I even go? Today, we're going to start our study on spiritual disciplines, and like we talked about last week in this series, we're going to talk about five in particular. Depending on the list that you look at, there could be dozens of different spiritual disciplines. But in this particular study, we're going to look at five. And those five are scripture reading, prayer, fasting, accountability, and rest. So our topic for today is daily Bible reading. Now, that might seem like low-hanging fruit. That might seem like the easiest topic to have a sermon on. Any preacher will tell you over and over, read your Bibles. But here's the thing, we all know that we should. That's not news to any of us. However, the thing is we don't often do it, at least not regularly enough. 
And so when I sit down to write this sermon, I'm, I'm scratching my head thinking, how am I supposed to say, read your Bibles for an hour? I mean, I also thought, actually, it would be pretty epic if I got up to preach, walked up here, let there be a dramatic silence, stare out at you and just say, read your Bibles, and then get down off the stage to the raucous applause of everyone in here as the greatest sermon they have ever heard. But the more I thought about this, the the more clear it became that the most helpful thing to do would be to lay out some guiding principles that will hopefully instill in us why and also how we accomplish this task of having a daily discipline of Bible reading. Because here's the truth. I want you to be safe from the forest fires that threaten your spiritual life. The tortoise in that story, made the mistake of just putting his head down and walking. He was not aware of anything else outside of him except for just the moment. And that is typically how we operate. We live day to day, moment to moment, without any real long-term focus. We just kind of fly by the seat of our pants. At least I know that that's my tendency. But the hare was wise. He had his eyes up. He saw danger and he knew how to distinguish between what's important, uh, I'm sorry, what's not important, which is the race, and what is truly important, which is safety. Admittedly, the hare is also a major jerk for letting everyone die, but uh, we're going to change that part of the story when we apply it to ourselves. So we'll change it to he lost the race, but then he saved all the animals because of it. So how do we grow in life-saving wisdom? Daily study and meditation on the scriptures. So turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 11. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 21. Deuteronomy 11 verses 18 through 21. As you're turning there... Allow me to set up a little bit of context. Where we find this particular passage in Deuteronomy, this is a section where God is giving the Israelites the law. At this point, he has rescued them from bondage in Egypt, and now the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness. A couple of chapters prior to this, Moses had gone up on Mount Sinai to receive from God the Ten Commandments, among a host of other things. But then, in this crazy scene in the Bible, Moses descends down the mountain and he sees the people worshiping a golden calf made by his own brother. And so Moses takes these stone tablets that he's holding and he rages out and he throws them down and breaks them and he screams at his brother, you done messed up, Aaron. And then he takes the golden calf and he grinds it down to a powder and he takes some of the people who were worshiping this calf and he makes them drink a mixture of this powder and water and a bunch of them get sick and die. Pretty crazy. Then Moses goes back up the mountain 
to be with God again. And, and in chapter 10, there's this verse that I've always found very entertaining. Uh, the beginning of chapter 10 in verses 1 and 2, God tells Moses to cut two new stone tablets and come back up the mountain with those. And in verse 2, he says, and I, will, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets that you broke. And you shall put them in the ark. So Moses stays up on the mountain with God for another 40 days. And upon his return down the mountain to the people, he gives them the word of God. He is God's messenger. God's mouthpiece to the nation. And so, tablets firmly in hand this time, he lays it out for them. This is literally God giving the people scripture. Explaining to them the importance of centering their lives upon it. He explains the benefits of keeping these commands. And then also the consequences of failing to follow them. He contrasts a life of blessing versus a life of consequences. But more importantly, he makes clear how his word ought to guide every single moment of their lives. So, with that in mind, let's take a look at our passage. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 18 through 21. God is speaking and says this, You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart, And in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. Before we begin, I need to issue a brief disclaimer, lest you be terrified. I am going to set today a personal record for the number of points in a sermon. As you know, typically my sermons have two, maybe three points. So, with the average length of my points in a sermon, extending that to seven points, it would be a sermon of about four and a half hours, and we'd get out of here at approximately 11 p.m. Maybe someday we will attempt that, if we all agree together to venture down that road. I assure you today is not that day. So, these points will be very short. They're kind of just pearl strings on really just one main thought. Really, they're sort of seven subpoints under one main point. And that is that growing in the Lord is guided by the consistent study, meditation, and shared experience of God's Word. Growing in the Lord is guided by the consistent study, meditation, and shared experience of God's Word. By the end of today's message, what I'm hoping is that you will walk away with a greater desire to spend time in God's Word every day, 
and that you'll also be a little bit better equipped to do so. So, if you're taking notes, here is point number one. We need the daily practice of layups. We need the daily practice of layups. The first command that is given in our passage is in verse 18, where God says, Therefore, lay up these words of mine in your heart and soul. Lay up these words of mine in your heart and your soul. The Hebrew word that is used here for lay up is the word sum. And the best way to understand the word sum is to picture someone who is cutting wood for the winter. Now, I have a coworker who has one of those fancy machines called a wood splitter that does it all for you. You just take a log and you put it in there and it out, out comes however many pieces you want. That's not really the picture I have in mind. The picture that we should have in mind for the word sum is the old school way where it's done by hand with an axe, chopping each piece one by one. It's a process that takes forever. They spend a great deal of time cutting these logs and then cutting them into pieces. And then they take those pieces and they lay them all on top of each other in a nice big pile. So when winter comes, they'll be ready. They'll have plenty of wood to keep them warm in the cold because they took the time to lay it up in that process of cutting wood. That is what it means to lay up God's word in our hearts and our souls. Little by little, verse by verse, we store them up. We pile them up like treasures in our hearts so that we can use those things when winter comes to keep us warm. Now notice specifically here that God tells them to lay up his word in their hearts and in their souls. So there are two types of laying up that are being addressed here. Two ways, you could say, of laying up his word that address different parts of our person. The word that is used for heart here refers to the inner man. It refers to the seat of our emotions, our will, our appetites, and our conscience. The word that's used for soul is a similar word, but it's translated in many other places as the word mind. So what God is telling the Israelites to do is to lay up his word both in their hearts and also in their minds. So that means there are at least two ways of approaching scripture that are vitally necessary for us, which accomplish different tasks. And that is to approach the scripture for learning and also to approach the scripture for loving. In his book, Celebration of Discipline, which sounds awful, if we're being honest, author Richard Foster helps us differentiate between these two pursuits. He says, there's a difference between meditation and study, and both are necessary. He says, meditation is devotional, 
Study is analytical. Meditation will relish a word. Study will explicate it. Now, unfortunately, I can't spend a tremendous amount of time on meditation. But Foster, again, gives us a helpful explanation by telling us that meditation in the Christian sense is not anything like what typically comes to our mind when we hear that word. When we hear that word, we we usually think of Eastern religions and Eastern mysticism. And in that context of Eastern religion, the practice of meditation is for the purpose of completely emptying the mind. It is for the purpose of detaching completely from the world. But where the practice of meditation there is for emptying and detachment, for us, meditation seeks to fill the mind with the word of God. It seeks to attach ourselves to the truth of God's word in scripture. So to meditate is to hear God's voice and to obey God's word. And I hope that that doesn't sound mystical. It's not as if we are sitting cross-legged with our eyes rolled back in our heads, humming the whole time, waiting for God uh, to speak audibly to us and we hear the sound in our heads. What it means is that we are slowly praying over the words of the Bible. As we're doing so, we're allowing the Holy Spirit to connect His heart to our hearts. Dietrich Bonhoeffer likens reading the Bible in this way to reading a love letter from your significant other. He says, Just as you do not analyze the words of someone you love, but accept them as they are said to you, accept the word of Scripture and ponder it in your heart as Mary did. That is all. That is meditation. So what meditation is, is meditation is connecting at the heart level with Scripture. It is to read the Bible as God's love letter to man. It is a way of reading Scripture that calls our hearts to worship. A way of approaching the Scripture in such a way to increase our affection. But in another sense, God says, we also need to approach the Bible in an interpretive manner as well. Um, And I would actually say that this step precedes the meditative approach. To study the scripture is to learn in an intellectual sense what the original author actually intended. To learn about the the settings of culture and language and social dynamic. To grasp the message that God is giving to the people as a whole. And so to quote uh, Foster again, he puts it like this. He says, A vast difference exists between the study of Scripture and the devotional reading of Scripture. In the study of Scripture, a high priority is placed upon interpretation, which is what it means. In the devotional reading of Scripture, a high priority is placed upon application, which is what it means for me. But all too often, people rush to the application stage and bypass the interpretation stage. They want to know what it means for them before they know what it means. So, 
Here is my practical advice to you for approaching the scripture in these ways. First, I would highly recommend uh, to help you with the analytical side, a study Bible. Uh, A study Bible has helpful notes at the bottom that give information about the passage that you are reading. They'll help you to wrap your mind around the background and the context. They'll help you to read between the lines. Sometimes there are things that are just plain hard to understand. And good study notes can help you in that regard. If you really want to get super involved, commentaries are a great resource. And there are libraries worth of commentaries that can be found online. But the study notes in a Bible are like mini commentaries. Um, Another resource that I'll recommend to you is called the Jesus Storybook Bible. Yes, the Jesus Storybook Bible is a children's Bible. It's a kid's book. However, it is an incredible resource, and because it's a kid's book, that's what makes it so accessible. And the reason why I love the Jesus Storybook Bible is because it helps you to understand the overall story of the entire Bible. It helps you place in a context and framework where every single one of the smaller stories fits into the larger story. And so, the Jesus Storybook Bible can help you to build a paradigm through which to analyze every single story that you read. On the flip side, the Jesus Storybook Bible is also a great resource on the meditative side, on the heart level, because it takes those stories and connects each one of them to the love of God. There have been many times where I choke up start to cry a little bit as I'm reading this children's book because it is so beautifully written. So, in your daily reading of Scripture, first, seek to understand what the passage actually means. Then, meditate upon it by asking the Spirit to connect the Word to your heart in order to personally direct you. In doing so, let me be very clear about something. What a passage means to you will never or should never contradict what it means in a general sense. We should not ever say, this is what it means to me, and think it is true if it goes against what it actually means. You can't just make the Bible say whatever you want. You must let the Bible direct you in the way that the Spirit wants. Lastly, before we move on, I want you to remember something that we talked about last week, which is progressive overload. Progressive overload is the idea in weightlifting that you start at a weight that you're comfortable with and then slowly add a little bit more. If you're starting a particular exercise at 50 pounds... Then the next week, make it 52 and a half pounds. Then a couple of weeks later, make it 55 pounds, and so on and so forth, so that in a year, you'll have gained a lot on that particular exercise because you've progressively challenged yourself a little bit more. You don't jump from 50 pounds to 100 pounds just like that. It it doesn't work. So in this way, when we're looking at all this, at first blush, this might all seem very overwhelming, 
to, to look at Scripture in this kind of a way on a daily basis, it might sound like you're signing up for a seminary degree, and this is going to take hours every single day. Take a deep breath. I want you to start small. Maybe it's one chapter. Maybe it's just a section of a chapter. Maybe it's just a verse. Just one. Pray and ask the Lord to guide you. And perhaps consider starting to read through a book of the Bible. Say, for example, you're going to start reading the book of 1 Timothy. If you have a study Bible, read the introduction page on, uh, on 1 Timothy. Figure out who wrote the book and why. What are the major themes? Who's the audience? What is the cultural context? If you don't have a study Bible, just Google Introduction to 1 Timothy, and reading that intro will take you less than 10 minutes. Then, read a couple of verses. Don't read the whole thing if you can't handle that. Study those verses for a couple of minutes. Then pray and ask the Lord to guide you as you meditate on those verses. With their original meaning in hand, ask the Spirit to guide you and direct you to how to use those verses in your life. And in that way, you will engage both your heart and your mind. Moving on. Verse 18 tells us to lay up these words of mine in your heart and soul, and then says, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Bind them on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. Now, we all know about the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees are a group of religious leaders that are notorious for taking things in the Bible that were meant to be figurative and making them very, very literal. They're notorious for taking these passages that God meant in an allegorical type of way, and then they make them into a long list of rules. This is one such place. One such place, in fact, that later on in the book of Mark, Jesus squares off with them about how they take this verse. The Pharisees took this verse as a literal command to put God's word on their hands and on their foreheads. So they invented these wearable boxes called phylacteries. And these small boxes that are about this big contain little pieces of parchment upon which verses of Scripture are written. And so during their daily prayers, they will take these boxes and literally strap them to their heads and wrap them around their arms and wear them as they pray. I don't believe that that is what God intended when he wrote this verse. Consider this, okay? Let's take the entire verse and say that if God is speaking literally in this verse, and he literally wants you to strap the Bible to your forehead, and literally strap the Bible to your hand, well, a little bit earlier in that same verse, that would mean you'd have to literally strap a phylactery on your heart inside your chest, which would require surgery and would probably kill you. So, I don't think that's the point. So, let's break this up into two points. 
Here is point number two. Our actions should be guided by the word at all times. Whenever the Bible talks about hands, it is often done to refer to some type of action. So many times when it says with your hands, it's meant to say with what you do. God's hand is often referred to in this way quite often. When, when scripture talks about times that God moved his hand, it is referring to something that God actually did in the lives of real people. So hands equals action. When God sends Moses down the mountain to give the law to the Israelites, his intention was not for the law to be something that just stays in the Ark of the Covenant and is only studied in the synagogue or during worship services. His intention is that the word would be the driving force behind every decision that we make, behind everything that we do. Behind every action that we commit, almost as if it is written on our hands. Now, many of us don't connect the Bible to the things that we do throughout the week. Part of that is because we don't have enough knowledge about the Bible. We don't know the Bible well enough to make those dots connect. But another part of it is because we live our lives as if we are in charge of them. But we have to remember that that is not true. We are not our own. We were bought with a price, and we are to serve God with our lives. So part of what will happen when we lay up the word more and more in our hearts and minds is it will equip us to live in accordance with that word. Right now, you might not have a vast knowledge of the Bible. Maybe your knowledge of the Bible is very limited. That's okay. Don't beat yourself up for that. Start wherever you are. It's a lot like getting in shape. Don't look at somebody who's in great shape and say, well, I'm not in nearly as great of shape as they are, so what's the point? I can't do this. Guess what? That person didn't start where they are right now either. It took a process to get them to that place. So today, commit to the process. In your daily reading, in your daily meditation, begin to file away, little by little. Begin to file these scriptures in your heart. Pile them up like logs for the winter. The more you grow in your knowledge of the word, the more you'll be able to apply it to every action and every decision. Of course, we know that there's a lot of times that we're praying about decisions and we have no idea what to do. Part of it is because we haven't built up a big enough scriptural log pile. So, beginning tomorrow, start chopping logs in order to live in such a way that every decision is guided by the Bible. Point number three, our thoughts ought to be guided by the Word. So, in a similar way, the paradigm of our thought process ought to be framed by the Word of God. 
This is what he means when he tells them that the word should be like frontlets between your eyes. It means that the word should be the lens through which you see the world. Whether or not you realize that every single one of us has a framework that determines how we process information. That framework is made up of a combination of things that include our upbringing, our personal experiences, the opinions of people that we respect, lessons that we've learned, the set of values that we hold, etc., etc. So we put all of those things together in our minds, and those things are like a filter through which we process information and decide what to do with it. But there should be no greater piece of that paradigm than the Word of God. The Bible ought to be our primary filter in our minds. The Bible tells us what is right from wrong. The Bible can guide us into what wisdom looks like. And that word wisdom is just simply knowledge that is rightly applied. Knowledge that is lived out in the correct way. And so the Bible can give us both the knowledge and the discernment as to how to live it out. In our last series, we spent a considerable amount of time in Psalm 119. There's a verse that we looked at, Psalm 119, verse 105, that says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light for my path. So the psalmist is saying in that verse that God's word will show us what steps we ought to take. And the lamp that he's referring to refers to a handheld lamp that gives off a flame that is no more than a candle. So that means it's only going to show us one step at a time. One step, little by little. The Bible shows us where to go. That means that every day we have to be relying on the wisdom of Scripture to guide the ways that we think about every area of our lives. So, again, getting practical here. A practical step to take is to start practicing this. Remember the old WWJD bracelets? They used to be very popular when I was in high school. As a matter of fact, I have a WWJD bracelet on my ankle that I put on when I was 14 years old, and it is still there. I haven't taken it off, partly because I want to see how long it lasts. You cannot see any letters on it. It is just a blob of blue and white color. It's under my socks. It would take a while to show. I'll I'll show you after. I've got one on my ankle. But this is what I want you to start practicing in your daily life. Begin to think in this way, what would the Bible say? As you're processing decisions, think about it in terms of what would the Bible say? Do that on purpose. And that might seem awkward at first to try to make that a habit, but anytime you're considering any type of decision, anytime you're trying to think through something, start with that question. What would the Bible say? And maybe figuring out the answer to that will require a bit of study. But the more you do that, the more it becomes second nature. Many times as it becomes second nature, you won't even have to think about it. As that log pile grows in your heart, you'll be able to quickly recall and access what you already know and live more wisely because of it.
So the Bible should be guiding our every thought. Point number four. You are called to teach your kids. It says in verse 19, You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. So we have a number of parents in our church. And here's what I want to say to the parents in our church or the parents who are watching or the parents who are listening to the podcast. It is not the job of the church to teach the Bible to your kids. It is your job. God has placed you as parents in your children's lives, me in my children's lives, my wife. We have been placed over them to be the ones to train them up in the way that they should go. The church is a part of supporting that effort. That, that old saying, it takes a village, the church is part of the village that is supporting you to teach your children the Bible. Uh, in my old church in Virginia where I used to work, um, I was meditating on this idea and realizing as a youth pastor back then that it was not the job of the youth pastor to train teenagers how to follow Jesus. Scripture says that's the job of the parents. And so I began to think, how can I, as a youth pastor, equip the parents in the church to lead their own children? Because a lot of people walk into church and they hear that and they go, okay, but how? So I thought, I've got a genius idea. I'm going to come up with a resource that will help parents train their students throughout the week with zero effort at all. And I called this resource Samurai 720. The name of our youth group was the Samurai. So it was the 720 part. And that was seven days a week, 20 minutes a day. And here's what I did. On Wednesday night in youth group, I would teach whatever lesson. And I would record it on video. Then I would upload that video to YouTube. And then there would be a step-by-step guide for every single day for parents to reference that lesson, read the, the scripture themselves to their kids, with their kids. There were questions that they could ask. There were prayer prompts that they could pray together through these things. Discussion prompts so that they could talk about these things. And I, I told the parents, you can do this on your way home from school. You can do this at the dinner table. You can do this before bed at night. It'll take 20 minutes a day. That's it. And I'm going to lay it all out step by step so you don't even have to think about it. Just pull it up on your phone. All right, here's the stuff for today. I thought, this is going to be easy. This is going to be great. Parents are going to be teaching their own kids. You know how many parents use that resource? Take a wild guess. Anybody? Zero. Not a single one. There was one person who used this resource regularly. She was a 70-something-year-old lady who did not have any children and my wife refers to as a Sway superfan. Her name was Joyce. God bless Joyce because she was the sweetest woman I've ever met and was always telling me super nice things like, Pastor Sway, you are God's voice to this generation. And it would warm my heart, and I loved her very much. But Joyce Nunnally was the only person using that website. It frustrated me so much. 
So I thought, here's a way to hand parents all that they need. Here's the truth. Parents, if you're listening, I'm not making that resource again. Okay? I'm not putting that work in. It's up to you. You do it. And I promise to help you in whatever way I possibly can to train your children in the Bible. Now, some of you may be thinking, ha, I don't have any kids. I'm not a parent, therefore, I'm off the hook. So let me say to you, first off, right now, before you have any children, learn the word in such a way that you will be equipped when you do have children. You have plenty of time now, hopefully, to start building up a log pile in your heart so that when that time comes, you will be ready to start putting little uh, twigs in their own log pile. Second, you can start now helping others learn Scripture. You can start having these types of conversations, which is the next thing in this passage. Point number five, your conversations should be filled with Scripture. He says, you shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you're sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. This is all day. All day long, the, the conversation is filled with the Bible. All day long, the Bible is guiding the conversation. It's being discussed. It's being talked about. It's being broken down. It's being commented on. So in order to do this, first, we've got to pray for opportunities for gospel conversation. We've got to be on purpose seeking out opportunities to have scripture conversations with people. People that are in the faith and people that are not in the faith. And here's what I promise you. If you are praying and really meaning your prayers, God give me opportunities for gospel conversation. Guess what's going to happen? That. If you pray honestly, Lord, give me opportunities to talk about you today. God is not going to sit up in heaven and go, nah, I'd rather you not. No, God is going to open those doors. Here's the other thing to consider. One of the best ways to get a better grasp on Scripture is to talk about it. Some of you may be verbal processors. Some of you may be those types of people that in order to really start to understand something, you've got to talk through it out loud. And so you'll talk to someone and use them as a sounding board and you'll kind of verbal vomit all of the things in your mind and you'll be like, uh, just ignore most of what I'm saying. I'm trying to process this. And hopefully that person is listening patiently and then flushing most of what you said and nodding respectfully. <laughs> if you're a verbal processor, one of the best ways to grasp Scripture Simply to talk about it. One of the other things here, like I talked about last week, is that hopefully you are going to be on this process with a buddy. Somebody with you. Hopefully you have been praying about, Lord, link me up with somebody that I can start to do these disciplines, not by myself, but with someone else. We know that any habit that we try to form is much more successful when others are doing it with us. In community, we're far more likely to be successful. So hopefully, you have a buddy that you're trying to do this with. Talk to your buddy. 
Talk to your buddy about the things that you're reading. Let your buddy talk to you about the things that you're reading. Next, point number six. Put scripture at the forefront of your mind as you leave home. He says in verse 20, You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. The doorpost of your house is the doorframe. The doorframe is the last thing you will see as you walk out the door. And so it's a way of saying, let your day be dedicated to following after the Lord through the scriptures. It's a visual cue to tell you, I'm starting the day off by building the foundation on the Bible. I have a specific challenge for you. One that over the last couple of weeks I have been trying to put into practice. And I'm being honest when I say it has made a huge difference in my life. Here's the challenge for putting this into practice. Very simply, scripture before phone. When you get up in the morning, before you look at your phone, before reading email or checking social media or anything else, technology related, whatever it might be, let the first thing that you do be reading scripture. And maybe it's just a verse. Maybe it's a short psalm of a few verses. It doesn't have to take longer than a few seconds. Again, we start slow. Progressive overload. Start little by little. If the first thing that enters your mind in the day is the word of God, and then later on in the day you are also spending real time in meditation and study, your day is going to go a whole lot differently. Your attitude will be a whole lot different. The way that you process will be so much different. You will probably be less in angst and stress. Now, I'm not saying your day is going to go perfectly. That this is just going to make your day be sunshine and rainbows. That's not what I mean. What I mean is if you establish that at the very beginning of the day, it will make a difference. So I'm challenging you. Scripture before phone. Finally, he says to not only write it on the doorpost of your house, but also on your gates. Your gates are out there. You write them on the gates so that when you see those doorposts in the morning, it reminds you. The gates are for when you come back home. I want nothing more than to lay my head down at the end of each day and know today I laid it all out for the kingdom. That is what I want my everyday to look like. I want to be able to lay down at night with no regrets. I want to be able to lay down and close my eyes knowing that my day was dedicated to the word. I also know that I'm human and I also know that life is very, very busy. We might have all the good intentions in the world, but then life happens and you'll have days like this morning for me. Um, I was called the other day uh, on Friday and asked if I would do an event set up at work. It was totally unexpected, totally random, 
the coaches were having recruits coming in, and they said, we want an event set up. And so me and my coworker Nick, look at each other, and we're like, this is ridiculous. We've got to do this event set up. So rather than having an easy Friday, we spent four hours doing an event set up so that on Saturday it would be presented to the recruits in such a way. But the thing about that event set up was someone's going to have to come back on Sunday and undo all that work. Guess who somebody was? <laughs> Me. So on Friday the plan was I'm going to go in on Sunday at noon. Sunday at noon, I'll meet the guy there, we'll, we'll undo everything. Except, last night, I get a text message as I'm driving home from the football game, exhausted, saying, hey, can you meet me at 6.30 in the morning to do this changeover? And I'm like, say what now? <laughs> 6.30 in the a.m.? I don't do 6.30 in the a.m., okay? That means I have to wake up at 5.45, and at 5.45, I couldn't tell you what my name is. I am so groggy and weak and practically useless, but it is what it is. So I text him back, and I'm like, I would love to meet you at 6.30 in the morning. What that means is, when I got up this morning, there wasn't scripture before phone, There wasn't kneeling down next to my bed and spending a few minutes in prayer. There wasn't, let me get my day started right. You know what it was? It was, oh my God, it's 5.45, I gotta get up. Where's the coffee? That's what it was. Stumble out of the house, get to work on time. But he says, write the scriptures on your gates. At the end of the day, there's still opportunity for me to spend time in the Word. When I come back home, it doesn't mean the day is over. It means I can still end my day on the right note before I go to sleep. So, discipline number one of our study. Daily study and meditation on God's Word. Remember the challenges that have been put before you. Do this with a friend. Do not do this alone. But let this become the pattern of our lives. And I promise you, if it is, you will not be burned in the forest fire that kills the rest of the animals because the tortoise was only worried about the rat race. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you for giving us an opportunity to look at the importance of pouring ourselves into the word every single day. God, I pray that you would lead us in a life of disciplined, consistent, daily pursuit. That we would see you as the most important thing every single day. That we'd start our day with you and fill our day with you and end our day with you. So that when we lay down at the end of the night and close our eyes, it can be with a heart that is filled with peace, knowing we've done everything we possibly can for your kingdom. Let us be that type of people. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, uh, Daryl will play our closing song.